You're listening to a Dharma talk from Sunday Morning Zen, a program of the Zen Life and Meditation Center of Chicago. Good morning, everyone. This is the last day of this seven-day fall session. Uh, and we're going to use the mindfulness bell, right? Every 10 minutes, good. I will need it. So I'd like to talk today about enlightened politics. <laughs> Are you rolling your eyes? <laughs> What's he doing talking about politics here? You know, we have the term um, engaged Buddhism, which is a wonderful uh, practice of bringing our spirituality into the world through all kinds of uh, good acts of, you know, wonderful, doing wonderful things. And I think given the moment, we need another term, enlightened politics, to talk about how we bring our spirituality into the world in the in the moment we find ourselves in. And on this day, Saturday, September 18th, uh, Justice for J6 is holding a protest rally in Washington, D.C. to celebrate what the news reports call the insurrectionists, which I think we just should just call domestic terrorists, that try to stop our peaceful transfer of power in our, of a democratic election on January the 6th through violence. Now, I believe in separation of church and state. I think it's very important. So I'm not here to talk about partisan politics. But can't we talk about what it means to be a good citizen in a, in a de democracy? Can't we talk about that? or have a conversation about this. If you aren't feeling any kind of angst at the moment, given what's been going on, or any kind of concern, I would humbly suggest that you're just not paying attention. So it seems to me that our Buddhist values are very much in line with what we consider to broadly speaking to be democratic values. Uh, everyone has a right to vote. Um, everyone should be protected uh, uh, regardless of race or economic status and we shouldn't uh, demonize a particular group 
we should have a sane immigration policy and acknowledge that our country has been founded on immigrants and a lot of immigrants have contributed enormously to um, this our country i'm speaking of america that's where i am right now we don't like this word politics we don't talk about it so much in the spiritual context because politics has to do with power and we we see enough of the abuse of power to be rightfully cynical about even trying to discuss it. Politics is simply about how we govern, how we govern a country, how we govern a state, how we govern a municipality, how we govern a Zen center. Power is part of life. How we make decisions, who makes them? How do we use power? Do we use power skillfully and with some wisdom and, or do we use power in a way that's abusive? Because uh, power as an end in itself uh, is, leads to corruption. And I think we would all agree that that's not such a good thing. We just finished the 20 year war in Afghanistan, and uh, we seem to have been surprised that the Afghani government uh, didn't have any support of the people. Why didn't it? It was corrupt. It was corrupt as all get out, so the people didn't trust the government, and it fell very quickly, even though we had poured millions of dollars into that country. If we are to be citizens of a democracy, of our democratic republic, then it seems to me it's time to get our house in order. Mindfulness, as it's taught in our tradition, um, has a... a um, has, has an ethical imperative to discern what's wholesome and what's not. So why shouldn't we work to support some kind of governance at whatever level we're speaking of that nourishes such wholesomeness, that, that uh, has values that resonate with our own values? And why should we think that spirituality is simply a private, personal, individual matter and doesn't have anything to do with wellness or our collective wellness because wellness has to do not both with our individual wellness but also with our the wellness of everyone and if the planet is sick then we're sick and if our country has lost its way then we've lost our way too Walter Wink, who has uh, passed away, was a, a Christian theologian and wrote a trilogy of books on um, what he called, uh, uh, um, he wrote other things, but he, basically the thing he's most well known for is 
what he called the myth of redemptive violence. And he wrote a wonderful book that summarized uh, all his other writings called the powers, that be, the powers That Be. And he says this is a myth in the sense that we don't actually recognize that we have this belief system. It's unconscious in the culture for the most part. So he tried to name it. And basically, it's a myth with the moral uh, message that violence works. And he came upon this by watching his own children watch cartoons, Popeye, <laughs> and many, and then he realized as he watched movies that he was seeing this pattern over and over and over again. And what's the pattern? And you will all recognize it as soon as I tell you the pattern of the story. You have the hero, the protagonist, who is abused in some way by an evil person. There's that word, evil, bad person, the villain. And then for much of the story, and this, this evil person in the beginning of the story seems all powerful, unbeatable. And then for much of the story, you see the hero being abused, betrayed, in, with injustice by this villain. And then at the end of the story, by the end of the story, the hero comes around and with vengeance and vigilante justice, slays the villain or gets, just gets rid of them in one way or another. And to the degree that we have observed the hero being put upon unjustly by the villain, that much we feel some kind of justice in seeing the villain rightfully killed, dismissed, done away with. Don't we? Can you, you, if anyone doesn't recognize the story? So the status quo is restored and we feel good. Walter Wink says this is, a, this is our religion and it's more popular than any religion that we practice. Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, much more popular. Mm, yes, it's just violence works. It's not violence as a last resort, it's violence as a first resort. And it gets worse from there because you can see it develop to the point where now it's not only violence in the service of, of overcoming evil, it's just violence for its own sake. Just for the, um, uh, just brute force. Violence is an end in itself. There's no mercy or forgiveness or any spiritual teaching in that at all. And God and religion is often misappropriated in, uh, along these lines as well.
So is that a value that we believe in as So I think we would all agree if we were to sit and think about this for a moment that we don't subscribe to that as a value or as something that we think is wholesome, a wholesome way to govern. And even if we're an extremely progressive person and we subscribe to uh, civil disobedience, we, we would also, and I think anyone that practiced, like Martin Luther King or Gandhi or anyone else that talked about civil disobedience and nonviolence, if you commit civil disobedience, you have to be willing to uh, suffer the consequences of having broken a law you don't agree with. We are a nation of laws. We have a constitution. It matters. That's what makes us a democracy and not a, a dictatorship or an autocracy or something. And isn't that a good, I mean, so far it's been a pretty good way to govern a country up until now. So I'm not talking about partisan politics. I want to be clear. We need a two part, up until now we've had two parties and we've worked well. We need two parties. We need, a, we need principled conservatives, and we need progressives. We need people that want to support the, you know, are kind of supporting the status quo and people that are pushing against it for change. We need both. And the problem right now, in my humble opinion, and then this is just my opinion, I don't, I don't, I could be wrong, but from what I perceive, is that we only have one party, political party, and the other one has become a cult based on a, a, a celebrity personality of a person I think most of us would agree has very little personal integrity and doesn't seem to share the kind of values that we do as, as Buddhist practitioners. And uh, that's not a political party. That doesn't, that's not a party that is uh, advocating for policies that can be debated. So I'm going to circle the wagon here a little bit, so be patient with me, because in order to get at what I mean by um, what I'm trying to talk about this morning, I already forgot what I'm talking, what I'm calling it. <laughs> <laughs> Political, what, what did I call it? I have to look at the, enlightened politics, enlightened. yeah, yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a good term, and I think it means something I'd like to unpack it a little bit, but to get there, I have to circle the wagon a little bit, so be patient with me, if you will, if you would. To Engage in, in life and politics, as I'm speaking of here, we need, as Buddhist practitioners, wisdom and compassion. These are primary, important, fundamental teachings in our tradition, and they mean something. 
So let's start with wisdom. Uh, and let's be clear that if we just have wisdom of, uh, of selflessness on its own, it's not enough. It's not sufficient. It has to be joined with compassion in order to shift our sense of identity to a more collective, holistic um, participation. So what is wisdom? What is it? Well, according to our tradition, it's not possible to have wisdom without realizing the teaching that's called shunyata, or emptiness. There's that word. And that word we're so afraid to talk about. Why are we afraid of emptiness? We should celebrate emptiness if we understood what it was. But why are we afraid of this teaching or afraid to even talk about it? I think we're afraid of it because we misunderstand what the teaching is all about. We're afraid of it because we think we have one misunderstanding is that emptiness means non-existence. And that seems like a very negative teaching, and I would agree. It is. So if it's not about non-existence, then we go to the other extreme and, and think, well, if it's not about non-existence, it must be about some uh, something essential, some ontological ground that has to do with being or non-being. And that's not what it's about either. If something is empty, it has to be empty of something. So what is emptiness empty of? It's empty of a separate self. Everything is empty of a separate self. That's the teaching of our tradition. That's what our tradition discovered. So let's try to bring this down to earth and understand this is not a philosophical teaching. This is something to penetrate and really get. This is the way things are here. We're not imagining this. It's not just a philosophy. It's the way it is. And the, so there's a big difference between insight and knowledge. We can't know emptiness in the way we know other things. Knowing is, tends to be static and kind of solidified uh, thoughts that, that we then solidify into opinions and judgments and assumptions. But insight is always fresh and on the spot. Insight is dynamic. It flows. It penetrates. And we're always invited in this practice when it comes to a teaching like emptiness to penetrate into it, to take a closer look, to be one with it, to be one with life, to be one with reality. And if we do this over and over and keep looking, what well, you start to appreciate 
And notice that knowledge gets in the way. So you have to let go of trying to know this, which is, means you have to trust in some way, which is admittedly difficult for us to do. But let's just take this table. This table is not self-existing by itself. This table was made from a tree. It's a beautiful table, maybe a cherry tree, not sure. It was made from a tree. And the tree needed soil to grow, it needed water, it needed sunlight. So the soil is in the table, the tree is in the table, the sunlight is in the table. You get that? The table doesn't exist by itself. It didn't come here out of nowhere. It came here from causes and conditions. And everything in the phenomenal world comes here from causes and conditions, including us. We didn't come here from nowhere. What? Are you sure? <laughs> I'm not sure of anything. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm just throwing this out there as a possibility. Let's go further. And it, you can just take this out and keep expanding it. We include everything. We're not self-existing, but we are mutually interdependent with everything. Someone had to cut the tree down, a lumber, a lumberjack. He had to eat food. A farmer had to grow the food. A tractor had to harvest the crop. If there wasn't a lumberjack to cut down the, the tree, this table couldn't be here. You just keep going back and back and back. Everything is in this tree, and we're the same way. So the Heart Sutra says, no eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind. And that sounds kind of strange to us, because we think that that's, that's an awful teaching. It means my nose and eyes don't, my senses don't exist. That's not what it's saying. It's saying no eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind. It's meaning none of that is self-existing by itself. My nose doesn't exist by itself, it exists on my face. It's on my face with my eyes and my cheekbones and my forehead and my mouth and my ears. There's no way I could have a nose without all that. My nose is interdependent with the rest of me. And even if I'm Pinocchio and I tell a big lie and my nose grows out to here, it's still on my face. I'm interdependent. I have to eat food, drink water. I, I, I need friendship. I need community. There's all kinds of things we are mutually interdependent with. And all the teaching of emptiness is saying is that we are not self-existing and in, in we're not separate from reality. We are reality. We are the phenomenal world, all of it. My body is not my own. I have DNA from my ancestors and all kinds of things. That I, my breath is not my own. I'm breathing oxygen that comes from trees. 
and leaves and chlorophyll and the sun. I don't own my breath. And I couldn't. So that's a teaching of emptiness. It's not really so complicated. We think, it's, oh, it's some big mysterious thing. I, I have to sit 10 years before I uh, penetrate into it. Yeah, you can see it right now. And Trungpa said, shunyata or emptiness is neither religious nor secular. It is not particularly sacred, neither is it profane. It is what is, however, it covers a lot of ground. It is the first clear thinking and conclusion about reality in the history of the human mind. Yes. So that's the source. This is what we call ultimate reality. Yeah? And in the Mahayana tradition, we have a teaching that's called the Two Truths. We have a teaching about ultimate reality, and we have a teaching about conventional reality. And they're both important. What we're talking about here when we talk about emptiness is ultimately what's true in an ultimate sense, in an absolute sense. And because things are ultimately true in this way. They're perfect as they are. So we can give it names like emptiness or shunyata or the absolute, but the name doesn't, it's just a name. It's not the experience. And the problem with names is then we start thinking about it and there we go again, we try to know it, which just gets in the way. So that's why there's so many negatives in Buddhist philosophy, because what they're trying to say is, don't turn this into another concept. Hard not to do that, isn't it? What we want to do, we want to turn it into something we can know. But we can't know emptiness in that way, but we can perceive it with insight. We can experience it right here, right now. So there's ultimate truth, and then the conventional truth is we can name it as the relative. That's the differences that are here in abundance, the diversity, the wonderful diversity that arises in emptiness, the differences, appreciating the differences. We're all different. We're all the same from the point of view of the ultimate truth. We're all perfect and same, no boundaries, no self, none, far as the eye can see, and we're all utterly unique. I didn't have your parents, you didn't have mine. We each had our own upbringings, our own families, our own particular cultural background that we grew up in. There's no person on the planet like you, nobody. You are utterly unique. And so we also need to appreciate the differences. And the teaching of the true, two truths in our Mahayana tradition is that both are important and they need to be joined for wisdom to be here.
Okay? Now, wisdom is not enough, is it? Wisdom without compassion is just a dead thing. Not useful at all. In fact, it could be harmful. We need compassion. Compassion needs to be joined with wisdom. And again, we have two ways of appreciating. Uh, so when we speak of compassion, we speak of this as bodhicitta. And bodhicitta means awakened heart, opening our hearts. All the beautiful teachings the sensei's been talking about during this session about grief. Gratitude. Our sad and broken and tender hearts that bring love into the world and compassion. So we have two kinds of compassion we could also appreciate. We have absolute bodhicitta, which is the compassion that arises from emptiness. If you really see that there's no separation here and no separate self, that we are all one, we're all mutually interdependent completely, there's no separation here, no walls, no boundaries, then we're perfect as we are. No room, nothing needs to be improved here. We don't need a self-improvement project. Mindfulness is not that. At this level, we can just appreciate this marvelous, profound teaching, this unconventional teaching about the ultimate nature of reality and how compassion, absolute bodhicitta, arises when we see there's no boundary, then we love everyone. We love each other because loving you is loving me. How I treat you is how I'm treating myself, and that brings forth compassion. And all, all the teachings of generosity and the paramitas that we practice in our tradition. So what gets in the way of that always, well, we'll get to that in a moment. Nothing gets in the way of this except that we just don't see it. So the compassion here arises from the experience of empty, what we call emptiness. And it's perfect. Now the problem is, if this is the only way we appreciate compassion, it can become monstrous. It could be really damaging. Because now we could say, oh, well, the status quo the way things are is the way, the way it is. If there's starvation in the world, that's the way it's perfect, as it is. If there's war and famine or pandemics or uh, suffering, that's just the way it is. That's uh, nothing to be done about it. That would be a terrible teaching. And that is not how we understand compassion. So absolute bodhicitta has to be combined with relative bodhicitta, which is back in the conventional reality. And relative bodhicitta is about 
the human warmth and connection and skillful means for how we actually bring compassion into our lives, into our daily lives. We need to do something to be compassionate. We need to act. We need to actively engage and love our world. So absolute bodhicitta helps us keep going without getting uh, discouraged. It gives us a lot of, of uh, uh, resilience and joy in the face of suffering, which is often extremely discouraging. The absolute bodhicitta can, can give us joy and resilience and help us keep going. And the relative bodhicitta also can, uh, grounds us and connects us to our hearts and to our active engagement and love uh, in the world. By themselves, either one is inadequate. They need to be joined. And when they're joined, we have what we call the bodhisattva path of saving this vow to save all sentient beings. And that is the path of our practice here at the Zen Center. So now I want to bring it all together into back into the Shakyamuni Buddha's last teaching. And you're saying, well, what is this? What does Buddhism have to do with democracy or democratic values? Because many people have pointed out, and rightfully so, that the Buddha, there tends to be an emphasis on individual salvation in our practice, and our Buddhism is very good at diagnosing suffering and showing us the antidotes to suffering, and all of that is true. And much of the history of Buddhism is a history of, of a religion that has supported the status quo, not always. So the emphasis, even in the Buddhist teaching, seems to have been pretty individual. But his last teaching, before he died, I want to give it to you now, because he's talking about democratic values and how to govern. And it's really an amazing teaching. The last thing he said before he died and it can be found in the Mahaparinibbana Sutra. And um, the situation is, he's in northern India, and there is a king, I won't, in uh, King of Magadha, who was a very cruel king, and he's going to go and uh, defeat and slay and kill all the tribesmen in the neighboring republic, the Vijarans, and uh, before he does so, he thinks, maybe I should consult the Buddha. And uh, this is a story. He sends his minister to uh, 
consult with the Buddha to see what the Buddha would uh, recommend that he do. And as the story goes in the sutra, there's two versions of this. In one, uh, Ananda is there, and um, the Buddha asks Ananda seven questions with the minister being present. And um, And with each one, Ananda agrees, uh, and the Buddha says, isn't this so? It's a leading question. <laughs> and Ananda says, yes, it's so, Master. And then the Buddha says, well, then, if that's so, then these, this, tri this, this republic of the Vijrans, I can't really pronounce it very well, uh, that, that, that this king plans to destroy, it would be expected not to decline. And that, in other words, if they do this, it's their best defense against this cruel king. Okay? Kind of, you, do you get that? So, someone? The other, he asks Ananda seven questions, leading questions about, uh, about this uh, republic. If they did this, would this be so? And Ananda says, yes. And then Buddha says, well, if they did that, then wouldn't they be likely to be well defended against this king because they're doing that practice or whatever that is, okay? And the other version is he just lists the seven principles and then he says at the end, and then he asks the minister, what do you think? And the minister says, well, no harm indeed can be done to the visuals in battle by my king except through treachery and discord. Okay? So let's go through the seven questions. Did the Vrygians hold frequent and regular assemblies, and were these meetings well attended? What's he asking? In other words, do they have a functioning House of Representatives and Senate? <laughs> <laughs> is there public participation in the meetings, in the governance? Couldn't this mean, does, doesn't, does everyone have a right to vote? Okay, are you with me? Okay, second question. Did the Vigerians assemble and disperse from these assemblies peacefully? And did they conduct their affairs in concord, in harmony, in other words? In other words, did they conduct their governing in a nonpartisan way? Wow. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? He's asking, were they too partisan? Were they were they so uh, attached to their own particular sides that they couldn't agree on anything? Were they nonpartisan in their politics? Do they allow for free participation, discussion, and criticism without suppressing opposition or canceling people they disagree with? We take this bodhisattva vow, don't give up on anyone. Compassion means there's mercy in the world. 
and there's always redemption. So different from the myth of redemptive violence. Oh my gosh. The third question, did the Vigerans proceed in accordance with their ancient constitution and not enact new laws or abolish existing ones? He seems to be asking here if they were careful and thoughtful about their constitution. so that they didn't too frequently change it or, or change it carelessly or heedlessly. Isn't that interesting? Were they careful and considerate about the constitution they have in their republic? And did they honor and acknowledge it and live by it and not just change it heedlessly in a careless kind of way? In other words, were they a, a republic of laws? Did they respect and honor their elders and think it worthwhile to heed their advice? <laughs> yeah. You know, in Hawaii, if you have an elder in the room and the elder's going on and on like I'm going on right now, you don't interrupt the elder. It's really bad form. They respect their elders. Elders have life experience. They're, they're to be listened to, even if they seem a little crazy. You don't interrupt them. So what's the Buddha asking here? Do we listen? Do we respect senior statesmen? How about someone like Jimmy Carter? Isn't he a senior statesman of great personal integrity and compassion? Can't anyone, regardless of your political party, acknowledge that Jimmy Carter is a bodhisattva? Do we respect people like that? Or do you say, he's not in my party, I don't respect him? Do we respect experts or scholars or historians? In the context of a pandemic, do we respect scientists or health experts? Hmm. And the fifth question, did they refrain from abducting women and maidens of good families and from detaining them? Well, this is obvious, huh? Buddha is saying, did they, you're saying women should be not abused, they shouldn't be abused, they should be treated with respect. Do they have a right to make decisions about their own body? Or is the Republican telling them how they got to do things? Imposing their religious views on them. Sixth question, did they respect and, vener and venerate their shrines? Now, we're a very secular democratic republic, so we don't have, well, we have shrines in religious institutions, but in our democracy, what would a shrine refer to? 
Do we respect institutions like museums, libraries? Do we trust scientific foundations and have confidence in them as a source of information and good sense in our, in our republic? And then the last question he asked, did they make proper provisions for the safety and welfare of Arahats so that Arahats may feel welcome to their land? Now, in the Buddhist time, Arahats were enlightened Buddhist practitioners who were highly revered and honored because of what they had attained. Now, we don't speak of arahats in our culture, but we could be speaking of, do we, do we take time to have wise counsel from scholars or scientists or religious leaders? Do we, do we take time to reflect on some of their teachings that are considered to be, uh, you know, that have survived uh, for a period of time and that are generally, there's some consensus that these people have some wisdom. Do we listen to any of them? So I think it's interesting here that the Buddha did not say anything about that they, this republic needed to practice nonviolence as a deterrent to the king, as a way of defending their republic. What he said, what he seems to be saying is they need to scrupulously maintain their democratic customs and institutions. So that seems to me um, a teaching uh, for our time and for this place. And I don't see any reason why our spiritual practice can't accommodate uh, social values and democratic values that we all agree are generally wholesome. Generosity, uh, if we think about suffering and what causes suffering, we generally say it's caused by the three poisons of greed, anger, and ignorance. And the antidotes to that are the values that we cherish. The antidote to, to greed is generosity. The antidote to anger and hatred and meanness is love and compassion. And the antidote to ignorance and denial, just putting our heads in the sand, the antidote to that is wisdom. Clarity. So I think the dividing line might be here is if you think spiritual practice should be private and individual, then none of this applies. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be talking about politics at all because that's, that's collective. And no one can seem to agree on anything in our country. So why, why jump into the fray? But there are things at stake here right now in terms of our democracy, and it matters whether we have a 
seems to me, from my humble opinion, it matters whether our democracy continues or not. And so, I th I, from my point of view, it's time to talk about enlightened politics. So that's, uh, that's my talk for today, today, and we could have some uh, discussion, and you'll need to bring it back into gallery view so we can see the people online, too. Do you have any comments or questions or, or concerns? Anybody? Linda? Jokazan? Oh, she needs a microphone. You can take your mask off when you're asking a question, so we can all hear you. Um, yes, I'm very uh, familiar with what's going on in Washington. Mm -hmm. um, I understand the, the concept that you're talking about. Uh, I can't think of the words you used. It might makes right. It's basically yeah. what you said. Mm -hmm. I know somebody in the military actually believes that. My mm -hmm. is right. Yeah. Um, yeah, in addition to what's going on in Washington right now, I also heard night before last that the immigration problem in uh, Texas has doubled overnight. There's 12,000 people living under a bridge. Right. And uh, 8,000 more do. I can say, isn't that terrible? Why don't they do something? I don't know what they should do, that's the problem, but something mm -hmm. needs to be done. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, a, I'm a, I don't know, I, know, I understand I'm rambling, but <laughs> my, uh, I'm, I'm a news junkie. I, I like politics. It's like a big chess game to me. Um, <laughs> but I also believe in the old adage that says, all politics is local. Uh -huh. Everything is local and what happens to you immediately and immediately around you. There yeah. is nothing in the world more local than mindfulness. Uh -huh. And not, I, how do things change? And I think it changes locally, and I mean personally. Um, my, uh, instead of thinking about the 12,000 people living under a bridge in Texas, all of a sudden, I saw this new news blurb. This was last month. Uh, here in Oak Park, a 40-year-old 40, 40 man from Oak Park was at the uh, emergency room down at uh, Rush on Harlem. He was arrested for battery, for spitting in the face of a nurse. Uh-huh. How do you feel about that? That's not out there. No, that's, that's it's here. right here. How do you feel about it? You find out he's looking across the hall from you. Mm -hmm. um, it's easy to say, I mean, having worked in the hospital, you know, yeah, there are a lot of crazy people, you know, might have been on drugs or drunk or just crazy, but maybe he wasn't, you know, maybe he was a QAnon. Maybe he thought that, you know, the medical profession is now converted from being angels to people who are causing the spread of COVID. I guess my 
point is everything everything is local and uh-huh. changes until it changes here until I change the concept of how I see this person. Can I look at homeless people and consciously say, you know what, they're homeless, you know, because they had a problem. Not, it's not just because they're not looking for work, or that they don't want to work, or that they're too lazy to work. I have to change me first. And maybe I can't do anything for that particular homeless person, or that guy who spit in the face of a nurse, but I can, I can say something to my children, and how do I teach them, and how do I bring them up? What are they watching on TV? What are they doing? Everything needs to change here. It needs to change right in this room, right within this sound of how you treat each other. Can you forgive the person next to you? Because if you can't, you're not gonna go any farther. I my grandmother used to say, there's a little light inside you. It shines brighter than you think. Collectively, it can make a fire. So I, I've always, you know, I'm very invested in what what happens now, what's happening within the person next to you. Because if it doesn't change there and doesn't change in me, nothing will ever change. I don't disagree with you. But where is, what's the line between local and global? Where do you, is it the line uh, once you walk out the door? I mean, do you treat people differently outside the door because they're not in our sangha? You sure you're not saying that? No, no. So, so, yeah, so here's a local thing that happened uh, this week. Uh, there was a, uh, a QAnon activist that got got uh, COVID and was put in a hospital, and then um, QAnon people heard about it, and they demanded that the hospital give her that Everix, what how do you pronounce it, Everix, the 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 deworming uh, medicine for for horses. They demanded that the hospital give her that medicine. And the hospital said, we don't do that. That's not, that's not, uh, we don't, that's not science. We don't, we, we, we follow science. We are healthcare professionals. And some uh, right-wing lawyer got a hold of this and started making a lot of publicity out of it. So he'd get a lot of attention and called them medical murderers. That's happening close, not in, not, it, it didn't happen in Oak Park, but it was in Chicago, so that's, that's close to being local. And, there, and these things about people spitting on each other, that's happening all over the place. People are just behaving poorly. Let's, let's just say it, people are behaving selfishly. On both sides, you know, there are people behave. They're liberals, and you know, it's again. This is not a partisan thing. I'm saying, but um, so the question is, how do you activate this? That that's a whole other question. But can we talk about uh, a politics that would look like the practice that we're doing here? Isn't it? Uh, I think we could. Um, 
I went down to Jacksonville to help people register to vote in 2004 because there had been a problem there. And I, I joined other Buddhist practitioners in, in doing that for a week. Uh, that's just advocating for democratic values and supporting people's right to vote. And I don't see anything wrong with any of us uh, if we so chose to, to advocate for the right to vote and we wanted to get involved in that cause in some way of, of doing that and why that wouldn't be part of our spiritual practice. But I totally agree with you. It, all, it always begins with local, how we treat each other right here, right now. It's, yeah. I've also been in, in uh, activist organizations that treat each other poorly. <laughs> I was in an a, a anti-nuclear group in California in the, in the late 60s, early 70s that treated women really poorly. It was shocking. And, you know, so, yeah, how we... There, just because we have a, a cause that we believe in doesn't mean that uh, that excuses treating each other in a way that is uh, unhealthy and unkind. Yeah, I, um, I see the point you're making about the importance of the two sides. I think what's become probably most difficult for me is the, the us versus them, you know, us versus uh -huh. them. Yeah. And it's um, maybe if, they, if you have any, any insight into how, how, do we, how do we engage without falling into this, I have to pick this side or that, and, and you know, that that's the thing that's pushing me away altogether. Well, we, we engage through skillful means. We have skillful means for engaging, like nonviolent communication, where we don't demonize someone that we disagree with. We try to empathize and understand how did they, and, and have some curiosity, actually, about their point of view. It's not mine, but I can listen to your point of view, and I could sympathize with where you're getting your information, and I could uh, I could listen to it. I don't necessarily agree with you, but I don't have to demonize you to do that. That's not so easy to do. That requires some spiritual discipline, I think. But uh, that's a practice we can all do with uh, anyone in our family that we disagree with. Uh, uh, it's possible if some if you are. I happen to believe vaccinations are important, and that people should unless they have some. Uh, underlying health condition that would uh, be dangerous for them to get a vaccination, they should get vaccinated. And so uh, if, if I met someone that said they weren't vaccinated, I'd be curious why they believe that. And I could engage in a conversation with them. Well, why? Why wouldn't you want to get the vaccination? Oh, and then they, it's big pharma or something. But then I ask questions and try to find out, be curious about how they came to that point of view. And not, not to win the argument, not, 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 have, not investing in some outcome that says I have to be right, but that, yeah, I could engage with that person without having, we don't even know how to do that anymore. We don't even have, know how to have conversations with people we disagree with because we're in our own silos on, on, on the internet. 
So if you meet someone that is actually in the other camp, it's shocking. Oh, it's one of them. <laughs> it's like we don't even we don't even encounter the the other side, whatever the other side is. So again, I think wisdom allows you to have some empathy for this is another human being. This is how they they have their causes and conditions and their they have values and they have things they believe in that are totally wonderful that I would probably agree with family values or whatever, but I don't happen to agree with them on this particular point. But from the point of view of NBC, I think part of the skillful means is if I, if I step down beneath their belief system, what's their need that's driving, what is the need they perceive that's driving that point of view? I don't want to get a vaccination. And maybe their need is safety. I'm taking a vaccination because I have a need for safety. So we both have the same need. So if I can relate to them at that level beneath the point of view, then I can be connected with them on a level of our humanity. We both have the same need. We just have a different, we have a different strategy for meeting the need. And now we could have a fairly rational conversation about that. Hopefully, maybe not. So I think that's how we, we, have, we have skillful means in our tradition that can help us engage with people that, are, that we perceive as being difficult. Yeah, thank you. So for me, um, one of the things that comes first to the foreground is the thing that you said at the very end of the list of the seven things that the country or, a, or whatever they were um, that was to be sub subjugated if they do all these things the only way for them to be defeated is by treachery and so that is actually i think the crux of the issue because lots of people believe that treachery is an allowed mode of winning yeah. And the need is ultimately to win. And so if treachery is allowed, everything is explained that we are talking about so far, including the person who is in the hospital and who is not getting the medication that the QAnon is advising. Not so long ago, an important QAnon person died in Texas from COVID. And so now if, they, if QAnon says, if you're in a hospital and you do not get the course medicine or whatever it is, and if you die, then you die because of that, not because of COVID. So, you know, lot, lots of different ways to, to practice treachery is open to us. And the cult of personality people, they are very much into treachery. And that I think is a very serious problem because it has to do with values. And I agree. It's not a uh, comfortable or easy thing to uh, contemplate, but I think it is curious that in this situation, it's very clear that this king is a really bad person. I think he murdered his father, so he's a we know he's a treacherous person with very low moral character, and he's going to defeat this republic and the buddha does not say build a big army to defend yourself 
He doesn't even say practice nonviolence. He says the best way to uh, defend yourself against that treachery, and we can agree with him or not, is to uphold your constitution and your democratic institutions so that internally you will be strong. I think that's a, you may agree or disagree, but I think that's an interesting point of view that the Buddha is, is putting out here. And we usually don't think along those lines because we live in a culture with the myth of redemptive violence. So it's very hard for us not to imagine any other scenario other than responding with violence, because that's, that's the kind of the myth that we live with. But look what might have, this is speaking hypothetically now, but what might have happened in Afghanistan if that government had not been corrupt? What might have happened in 20 years if they had built a government that had the trust of the people and had a constitution that was obeyed for, by everyone equally? It's, it's possible it would have turned out a very different scenario. So. I, I'm not suggesting any easy answers here, but I'm just talking about a general perspective that we might contemplate. But, but yeah, we're on a kind of a precipice right now. There are people that believe in treachery and violence and might, and that's why I think we're at a kind of inflection point at the moment where we need to take stock of what's going on because what happens here really does matter to all of us in this room. What matters out there is going to affect us in this room and we may not actually realize that. Or it might affect us in this room. I don't, what do I know? <laughs> I hope it doesn't, <laughs> but it might. Uh, take your mask off, Gilkazan. I remember at Red Canal, I'm thinking, I was thinking, the one thing that we never did was actually think, why do they hate us? Nobody ever asked that question. Why do they hate us? No. Same thing we need to do locally. I had a fight with my best friend. Why does she hate me? Can spread like that. I think that's my point. Yeah. Never, never even contemplated that it was the reason we might have done something wrong. Yeah. I think when 9-11 was so traumatic that we all felt helpless, and I don't think uh, as a country we knew how to stay with that vulnerability. So the, the natural knee-jerk reaction was to respond with the power and might of our technology, because we could. And uh, that was felt justified. It was, uh, and and uh, we see what the, what the karmic blowback from that has been after 20 years. It didn't go very well. Was, the whole world felt sorry for us. 
They did for a while. We never we should use that collective passion. They did for a while. I was in France. I was in Paris, and the, the uh, Parisians, who usually aren't that sympathetic to Americans, the ones that I met were very sympathetic when 9-11 happened, because I, I was there. But I don't, anyway. Um, yeah, I, we didn't really ask what were the needs that caused bin Laden to do what he, what were the needs that caused him to do what he did. And the Associated Press said he did what he did because we had troops in Saudi Arabia, which was sacred soil for Muslims. We had an embargo on, on Iraq at the time, and there was another thing that he said that it was his need. And uh, understanding why they hate us or why they did what they did isn't to condone what they did, but at least to give us some insight into why this is happening. Um, and we don't seem to be able to step back and have a larger perspective on the world in that way. Well, I think it tempers your response. Huh? It helps temper your response if you understand it might. It might have. Yeah. We could have taken them to international court or something. We could have done something very different. Uh, and again, to talk about this is just sounds almost ridiculous because it's so outside of our frame of reference. But in the Buddhist tradition, they talk about the four requisites of a government, what a government should do. It should provide food for the population, clothing, shelter, and medicine. That's kind of basic stuff, isn't it? Wouldn't you think a government should help provide those things for its population? And if it didn't, then it's somehow failing as a governing body? We might add a fifth one there, self-determination. It's also, it seems to me, important. But uh, it's just so far out of our realm of thinking anymore that it's, it sounds almost ridiculous to say it, that politics and governing might be based on some kind of values of, of kindness and generosity and taking care of each other and not, not meanness and hatred and division. So, yeah, anytime we bring up something like this, the big question is, well, then how do you practice it? And I, I'm not telling you how to do that. You have to figure that out yourself. <laughs> I just, I'm just asking the question. I'm just bringing up the situation, and I do think the moment is calling for some kind of response from us as a spiritual community and I uh, and that we at least reflect on the situation we find ourselves in with a uh, not only the pandemic but the the uh, the plant the crisis of our planet is uh, it's here now it's not going to happen in 20 years. It's happening right now, and we're seeing it. Uh, we're seeing our planet unravel right before our eyes, and we can either just ignore it and be in denial, or we can kind of 
find some something in us that can respond to it. There's might be something that we need to do. So I'll end with that. I mean, I I went to Auschwitz several times with Bernie and with Sensei, and I remember at the end of I think it was the second Auschwitz we had gone to some somewhere we were in switzerland or somewhere and we had a meeting with all the people that had been at this uh retreat bearing witness retreat in auschwitz which was really um very intense and and a lot of suffering and uh hard to integrate and um the the question that bernie asked is what are you going to do now i said, i don't know what i'm going to do now i'm going to go home to hawaii But he asked the question. It was like a koan. And I said, I don't know what I'm going to do now. I'm going to go home to Hawaii. What, what can I do about Auschwitz? I'm not doing anything about Auschwitz. I'm just one little puny little human being. I want to go home and be in the comfort of my home. I went to Auschwitz, been there, done that. Okay, already. I want to go home. So I went home, but the question stayed with me. And then I thought, well, could I do something? Well, if I did something, what would I do? And I thought about it, reflected on it. It was at least three, four months. And then I came up, I actually started to deal with the colon. And I said, I think what I can do is I can plant something. I can plant something in the earth. And I presented this proposal to our board at the time. And I think they thought I was a little nuts, but I said, let's start a community garden. I want to bear witness to the planet with my hands. I don't want to protest. I don't want to march. I don't want to carry signs. And, and do any of that. I want to plant something in the earth and have some sense of place where I am. So my board went along with it, probably thinking this is never going to happen. <laughs> and I went to the local school, the Parker Ranch School. It was a private school, and they were right in the middle of our town of Waimea. And they had a big field there, overgrown with all this poisonous, uh, what was that plant? Casper plants. There were two kinds. There's the one that you get the Casper oil from, and there was one that's poisonous. And they had a whole field. It was just covered with this stuff and wasn't being used. So I went to their board and I made this proposal. Let our Zen Center use your land and, and build a community garden in the middle of town that will grow food for people, and the kids can come there and get educated about sustainable farming and i we had i had a mission which was to uh uh to actually do sustainable farming and see if we could do it i'd never farmed before seemed like a good idea uh, without bringing in any outside um, expensive chemicals or fertilizers to uh, celebrate and nurture biological and cultural diversity and to nurture community. And to my surprise, 
the I get the Parker board, the school board said yes. <laughs> I was what? They said yes. <laughs> so then, and I said, we don't want to pay for it. We don't want to rent it. We want you to just let us use your land because it's not being We will use it for you. And they said yes. <laughs> so we started and it took us months to, to take take out all the, the weeds and the stuff. And I got a neighbor's tractor that I almost killed myself on. And we brought in John Jevons, who teaches sustainable biointensive farming. And we learned about sustainable farming. And we grew a beautiful garden for three years. It, all kinds of kids came there and had classes. And, and uh, teenagers that had to do community service from the court came and helped me double dig the beds. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a wonderful project. I was never happier than when I came home all tired and my I was muddy and full of dirt and I'd been working in this, the earth all day. I was, never was happier. And I did have a sense of place doing that. And so I just want you to consider that a koan or a question can work on you. So what would you do now if, if you were going to do something to respond to this moment? What would it be? I don't know. <laughs> 